Welcome to The Wonder, exploring perspectives, rituals, and observances of modern naturalistic, earth-revering, pagan religious paths. Here are your hosts, Yucca and Mark. Welcome back to The Wonder, science-based paganism. I'm one of your hosts, Yucca. And I'm Mark, the other one. And today, we are talking about decomposition and death. Yay! <laughs> and I've been really, really looking forward to this one. So this whole season, we've been talking about kind of the autumn-themed things, right? We talked about ancestors and our own deaths and hollows, and now we get to talk about it on the ecology side. Right. Yeah. And both of us are big fans. Yes. So you'll you'll find out why and you'll hear how excited we are about all the incredible things that have to do with death and decomposition. Yeah. So let's start a little bit with why why we're thinking about it this time of year. Because this is relevant all year round, but why are we focusing on it today? Well, it seems to me, yeah, it seems to me that there are kind of two reasons, right? One of which is kind of obvious, and the other one of which is not obvious at all. The first one is that this is the time of year when we acknowledge mortality, right? With the skulls and the bones and the blood and the monsters and the ghosts and the undead and all that, all, all that stuff that is part of our psychological complex around our mortality. But the other part that isn't as evident is that this is actually the time of year in the temperate zone when decomposers are going crazy with activity. I mean, they they, they work all year round, but... This is their spring. Yeah, with all the leaves falling and, and, you know, know, some, some moisture coming to help kind of speed the process, they're all out there going yum, 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 performing their function. Right. And they'll keep that up all winter long, right? Underneath those the leaves with the that nice, wonderful blanket of snow on top in the temperate forest. But this is happening to a certain extent in grasslands and and most of the temperate northern hemisphere right now. Yeah. And farther north as well, right? As we get into the farther polar regions. So right. And when you think about it, when you think about the the deciduous forests of the northeast and the north and southeast that whole huge band of deciduous trees in the in the eastern united states as an example Mm -hmm. when you consider the sheer volume of leaves that falls off of all of those trees onto the ground it is a miracle (laughs) that that stuff that we aren't buried in it up to a 15 foot level every spring right? But no, it's all gone. It has all been consumed and transformed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's our our reasons, right? So we're thinking about it from this ecology perspective, but then also we have the, the kind of wheel of the year when this is a time where we're focusing on the the death side. Now, the decomposers are kind of interesting because they this is their life, right? This is life and food and yum for them, but they're taking what has died. They're taking the death and they're transforming that into the new life. And we live 
in a point in Earth's history where we're, we have these incredibly complex systems that are built on literally billions of years of death. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about the individual number of deaths, that's trillions and trillions of deaths that have that have all added up to be able to make the soil that supports these systems, to be right. able to make these ecosystems, to make our bodies. Right. right. I, I was going to say, this is this is not an academic exercise. This is very personal to us. Mm -hmm. Those trillions of deaths were and are necessary in order for us to function. You know, at this very instant in the body of you, listener, cells are dying, living creatures are being disassembled because you you consumed them and mm -hmm. either your immune system is attacking them or your digestive system is disassembling them. Mm -hmm. and so there is there is a, a deep interpenetration of life and death as mutualistic functions that enable the process of life to exist on earth right and this is a this process is continuing right and that's something we talked about in the the past few weeks about our own death but our our many deaths the deaths of our cells and eventually the death of the whole of us as a pattern is part of that cycle which then is going to continue on to allow for the new lives on and on into the future. So it's it's quite it's quite awe-inspiring really. It to is to think about. Yeah. It is. And because we are life and because we're not actually decomposers primarily in our orientation to the ecosystems that support us, we tend to focus on life a lot and how important life is and how wonderful life is and all that kind of stuff. But the the miracle of life is that it is able to assemble from materials that used to be alive, organic materials, and, you know, mostly those, car those carbon-based organic materials, but mm -hmm. other stuff as well. Um, it's a life is able to take those dead pieces and snap them together and communicate this spark of lifeness <laughs> to it. And We're still it, trying it, to figure out really what that is. Exactly. But, it's, but we but know it's, it's there. But it's still working. Yep. It's still working. And I mean, to me, at this time of year, when I'm contemplating my mortality, I'm also contemplating the miraculous fact that at some point, an egg and a sperm connected and started spewing out genetic instructions Mm -hmm. And snapping together those molecules at a ferocious rate and consuming all of this non-live stuff mm -hmm. and assembling it into me. Yeah. That's really a, a hell of a thing. Right? Well, and, and here's a, another thing. That you, none of the, the, the actual atoms involved in that are the ones that you are today. No. You've changed all of those out. Right. right. And that gets into, we get into this really fun realm of thinking about, you know, what's person, like, what is it to be me? Right. Am I still the same me I was when I was 10 years ago or 20 or 30? And will I be the same me and 50 and, and all of that? But we're these pieces, they keep moving around and we're rearranging them. I like to think of it like, like Legos, really. Hmm. Like we have a, like the stuff that makes us 
are little Lego blocks or like pattern blocks. And mm -hmm. we stick them together in different ways. And then we rip pieces off of them and we get rid of those, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're always doing that, whether that's in the bathroom or sweating or breathing out or, you know, all of that stuff. And somebody else grabs onto that. And then they use it to build part of themselves. And then somebody else grabs that, right? Somebody eats them. And now they have all those pieces that they rip apart and they put together in different ways. And so we're just these patterns, these bits and pieces of earth that have self-assembled themselves and are, you know, sharing and grabbing from each other and rearranging in new ways. And it's right. just, it's just delightful. It's, it's just, yeah. It's so cool. I, I like to think of people the way I, I think of a river. Mm, you know, when mm -hmm. you think of a river, you think of, you know, there's the Mississippi River. It's a thing. It's got a We have a noun that we've applied to it. But a river isn't a thing. A river is a process. Yeah. You know, the, the same molecules of water are not flowing by every day when you go down to the river and take a look at it. And the river itself, unless it's been dammed by the Army Corps of Engineers in inappropriate and ecologically unsustainable ways mm -hmm. is moving its footprint all over the place it's because wiggling it's, back and forth it's yeah. responding to the conditions that change in in its surroundings and we do the same thing we are patterns mm -hmm. much more we are processes much more than we are things right we're know, wiggling right? patterns <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at a rock that I have. That rock is pretty much going to be the same rock for a very long time. Mm -hmm. It will eventually erode down into much, much smaller pieces of rock. And then when they're small enough, maybe some of those will get incorporated into some sort of life process, or they may be compressed into sandstone and take a new form, become metamorphic. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of possibilities there. But it's not moving in the dynamic kind of way that we're talking about with life right? Or, or with other dynamic systems like hydrological systems, like rivers and aquifers and oceans. Well, and, and life is just quite amazing in that what it does is it does take that abiotic, mm -hmm. right? We do take biotic things too, but that's what the producers are all about. They, they take the abiotic, like some carbon dioxide, and water and then we get glucose from that they make sugar out of right? it and then we eat the sugar right or yeah. yeah or the things that ate the sugar right and and then then it goes into the system and we all pass that around this thing that wasn't life but now it is life right and and our planet we started as a big ball of lava mm -hmm. right there there wasn't any soil to start with. We're just a big ball of lava. Now we've got to go from basalt to us. And yeah. that's what life is doing, right? And that, and without the death in there, there is no life. That's right. That's right. And, th and that's why the, the very simplistic philosophy of trying to minimize death mm -hmm. in the context of ecology makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. Well, it's because the, the logical conclusion to that is just to end all life and then there's no more death. Right. Right. Because and, life has to have death. And there is a certain logic to that in a very weird, twisted sort of abstract way. But in a real way, 
given that we are living beings and value the fact that we're alive, most of us. And I mean, I, that's like a Marvel like villain logic, though. That's it like is. that's like the comic version of Thanos, right? Like that's not him. But we we since we're alive, we don't. There's well, it's built into us to want to stay alive, right? Because what right. It, our ancestors, well. We didn't have the ancestors that it wasn't built into. Those ones didn't make it. That's right. right? The ones who didn't care about staying alive didn't. Yeah. So here we are, right? And and there's so much... Anything that you could possibly care about, in order to care about it, you have to be alive. Right? Whether yes. you value the music or art or education or, you know whatever progress with a capital P in quotation marks are, whatever that stuff is, you've, you've got to be, you've got to be there and alive to be able to, for that to exist. And, and for you to enjoy it or benefit from it or find it of value, right? Right. You know, you've, there's, there's got to be, unlike in quantum mechanics, there actually does have to be an observer in order for that, in order for that to exist. <laughs> in some, um, in some interpretations. Yeah. And wow, does that get into a whole fun, mind-boggling, soupy world? It it really does. And let's let's not go into that because we'll <laughs> never get out. People people who spend their whole lives studying this never get out. So, you know, one of the things that sometimes people propose is this idea that to minimize suffering, you need to minimize death. Or actually, there are some people who argue that to minimize suffering, you should maximize death. Mm, Everything right. should die and then nothing will suffer. Well, which... and then there's a limited number of deaths, right? Because there has to right. be life for there to be death. Right. Yeah. Right. So it ends up being very tail chasing. But I have, you know, there's this thing called the philosophical problem of suffering, which is only a problem if you're looking at things through a monotheistic lens with the assumption that you've got this beneficent deity mm -hmm. and how can you have all this suffering if there's a beneficent deity? Well, fortunately we don't have to grapple with that much because we don't believe in a deity. Right. So we don't have to believe in an all powerful beneficent deity and figure out why there's so much suffering in the world. So when I look at this question of, you know, is minimizing death, minimizing suffering, as we've established, minimizing death is minimizing life. Mm -hmm. And life is filled with a lot of joy. Right. Life has a tremendous amount of celebration in it. I mean, to me, the hard, if you want to ask yourself, you know, what, what's the problem of suffering? Why not flip that on its head and instead say, well, what about the maximis the maximization of joy. Yeah. Why shouldn't that be our yardstick for deciding what the best thing to do is? And that could have its own problems because maybe you would decide we need as many people as we can possibly have <laughs> so that they can be enjoying themselves as much as they possibly can. Right. Um, and then you get into carrying capacity. But, right. you know, so, so all of this... This is why slogans don't really work. Yeah. <laughs> because once you think past, you know, thought, you know, two thoughts past that, you go, hmm, okay, maybe there's a there's some nuance here. Maybe there's a whole system we got to balance this out with. But I don't think that the world is guided by moral ideas and principles. No, I don't either. So I think this is 
a lot of this is random to start with, and then life assembles itself. Mm -hmm. And we don't know if there is other life beyond Earth. I would personally be absolutely shocked if there wasn't. I'd be stunned I just, if there I, wasn't. I, I mean, I, it just... Yeah. And honestly, I think that in my lifetime, which is not that much time left, in my lifetime, we are likely to discover signs of life outside the earth. Yeah, I think so. I it's it is very likely and, and it will be, you know, primitive rudimentary life. It won't be, you know, it won't be us. Well, well but maybe it, though, right? Maybe possibly. I, mean, I would I would guess that probably more simple life is more common than more complex life, right? In the same way that we, you know, see more small planets than we see large planets, we're probably going to see, and we look at the own history of our Earth, right? We had simple microbial life, which we shouldn't actually pass off as being too simple. There's a lot more complexity to it that we forget because it's not the scale that we exist on, and we don't right. see it in that way. But But that's been the majority of life on Earth. So I think that that's we're more likely to find more of that, but I suspect that there's a lot of quite complex life out there as well. Oh, I agree. Um, yeah. And I if, just don't know that we're ever going to see signs of it within the next 20 years or so that I have to be alive. Yeah. I mean, there, it depends, right? It depends on what we're looking for. And if anyone wants a rabbit hole to go down, go ahead and look up IWOWs, Internal Water Ocean Worlds. These are places like Europa. Europa. Pluto, Enceladus, these, these, we're in XWOW, right? Water, our oceans on the outside. And the fact that we're even here is, is strange and bizarre given how many like hazards there are to living on the surface of your planet. So one of the places that we would expect to find life would be in these IWOWs where it's a much more protected environment that they don't have to deal with things like the dinosaur did, right? But they're harder to detect if they're there because they're under 60 kilometers of ice, right? Right. So anyways, that's a that's a fun um fun rabbit hole to go down if, if you're looking for something fun. So, uh, but so, yeah. Um we we've, we've kind of gone into well we we ended up sort of trailing into how abstract philosophy can often collide with the very shaggy nature of nature mm -hmm. right because nature is very complex and it's its complexity is fractal it has repeated patterns mm -hmm. but every one of those patterns is somewhat different than its previous iteration mm -hmm. every case is a unique case and it becomes very very difficult to make grand philosophical statements in that that simplify those things when there are so many special cases about the nature of life and the nature of nature right yeah so why don't we zoom in a little bit and talk about some of these these folks that are doing the decomposition sure right because we've been talking about them kind of on a philosophical level but at least as we have it here on Earth, the big stuff like us, we're exceptions. Most life isn't big like us, right? right? Most life is single cell. And many of the decomposers are, right? We're carrying them around with us. I mean, the people tend to think of the decomposition process as something that invades a body when, when the organism is no longer alive. And there is some of that. 
mm-hmm. but a lot of it is just the bacteria that are inside the organism continuing to multiply and kind of take advantage of the fact that there's no longer an immune system to keep them in check. Right. So they just grow and grow and grow and grow and they emit gases and the body bloats and all those kinds of things happen. Right. Yeah. They're, they're everywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. And the, most of the, the microbes in us are, they're in a mutualistic relationship with us. Mm -hmm. Right. We often associate microbes with, with, pathogens because the ones that we know the most about are the very very few ones that can cause us harm but we were very incentivized to study them yeah right same thing with viruses too we're we're absolutely full of viruses but the ones we know about the most about are the ones that can harm us and so over time i look forward to seeing where that whole field goes with our exploration Mm -hmm. of the roles that they play in in genomes and all of that yeah we're learning a lot about how viral genetic material has inserted itself into our genome at many, many points. And right. there's recognizable working viral genetic material now that is a part of us. Right. And we come at this from this human perspective, but it's everybody else too. Yeah. It's the sunflowers, it's your cat, it's the hydras at the you know bottom of of bodies of water, you know, all of that, right? So we've got we've got different groups of our microbes, which may look very similar under the microscope, but but behave very differently and are genetically very different. But we've got our bacteria as one of our major groups, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of our decomposers. And then we've also got our fungi. So mm-hmm. the fungi, they are really good at breaking down woody material that nobody else can really break down. And with our our plant kind of material, our, our cellulose, you know, the woody material is, but in terms of the, the main cell wall, which is cellulose, animals don't break that down. Mm-mm. The only things that do are the microbes. And any animal that can break it down is breaking it down because it's got microbes inside of them doing yes, it. It's hosting microbes that are doing that work for it. Uh, yes, whether that's you know, whether that's your bison in the field or whether that's your termite, they've got their little partners in there. And we often think about the decomposers on the outside, right? Like you were saying, we think about them in the compost pile or we think about them in the leaves, but in a lot of systems, they're inside of animals and Mm -hmm. the animals' bodies are part of the, the whole food web, the soil food web as well, and part of that decomposition. Right. Well, and just as an example of this, somewhere between a third, between 30% and 50% of any given bowel movement of yours mm-hmm. is bacteria. It's just, uh, yeah. Is, it's, just de- it's just decomposing bacteria. It's not food. It's mm-hmm. not stuff you ate. It's cells that reproduced like crazy eating that food. That you fed them. Yeah. That you fed them and that now you have excreted out of your body and they're going to continue going yum, 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 yum mm-hmm. um, on the remaining food material and other creatures will come along to join them in that. But it's it's so important for us to recognize that we are hosts to and basically factories for these decomposing bacteria and other organisms. Right. We are their habitat. We we are are. very literally an ecosystem, 
right? Just if you just even look at the definition of an ecosystem and it makes sense because it all started that scale, right? Mm -hmm. And the evolving into these, these bigger organisms, again, we think of this as being normal, but it's really, really weird for Earth's history and for the, the number of, of different species. It would make sense that as we evolved and got bigger, they would just move into the new habitats that were opening up and we would have been those habitats, right? So we look at our own bodies and we're full of microbes, but you look at the tree's body and they're full of microbes too. And that they're doing, some of those microbes are producers, some of them are decomposers, some of them are both at the same time, right? Right. Um, and so they're just at work taking this this stuff, usually dead, sometimes not, breaking it down, and then they're eaten by somebody. They're, most of them aren't just leaving it politely out for somebody else, right? Microbes don't really poop. They get eaten by something larger that gets eaten by something larger and something larger. And then that might excrete, but it it takes a lot of steps of it going from one body to another to another before it gets back into the soil or back into the body of a plant or the body of an animal. Yeah, one of the things about microbes is that they tend not to have a surplus you know, they absorb what they need, and then they just get bigger. Well, and then they split in half into two new ones. It, well, exactly, yes. Yeah. But so instead of excreting, although they do excrete to some degree, but not very much. In terms of, yeah, we're going to have different biofilms and things like that. But you, right. but typically, you're not going to see, like, micro pellets <laughs> the way you'd have yeah, like, exactly. rabbit pellets, right? right? Like, they just, they don't they they don't have the same kind of structures that we do to produce that yeah yeah that was my point yeah so yeah there's this amazing remarkable going on in us and it's going on around us and it is the means by which we are able to exist and so this time of year is a time when i really like to contemplate all of that and to be just to be super aware that that is the nature of what we're doing here. And because much of it is invisible, doesn't make it any less true or any less important. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that's very weird about humans is that we're gigantic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, e e even when you talk about the average size of an animal on earth the average size of an animal on earth is about the size of a wood tick yeah that is that is the average size of an animal on planet earth and we are these gargantuan creatures by comparison and what that means is that the scale that we see things on is not fine-grained enough to be able to see the microbial world where most of the action is taking place. Mm -hmm. Of course, things are happening at other scales. Of course they are, and we see that. But this, this microbial scale is so fundamental to the nature and fabric of life here on Earth that drawing our attention to it and paying attention to it and being aware of all that it does for us, I think, is just a, a really important part of my paganism, right? Right. Um, 
you know, because as we've talked about so many times before, a lot of what being a naturalistic pagan is about is learning to see and paying attention to the processes that are happening around us in nature. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah. So around this time in episodes, we often bring it back to how can we incorporate this or practice this sort of thing in our paths? And it sounds like you're talking about how important just the understanding is for you. Mm -hmm. Are there any kind of ritual or daily practices that you do along this, these lines? You know, other than just acknowledging my mortality that I, as a, as an operating system, am going to stop functioning mm -hmm. and that my awareness, the awareness that arises as a result of my functioning is going to stop. Mm -hmm. That I acknowledge, you know, in my daily practice and all that kind of stuff, because it keeps me on my toes, right? Keeps me aware that time's a wasting and, you know, we need to, we need to do the things that we want to do because we don't have infinite time to do them in. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of an actual ritual enactment of that, not so much because, I mean... I suppose I could put a Petri dish on my focus and, <laughs> you know, cultivate some decomposers, but I haven't done that. Um, mm. I'm just. Well, you mentioned very... you do compost though, right? Yes. Yes. It's yeah. actually the law in California now. You have to. They they haven't started enforcing it yet, but. Well, do you have you know... compost pickup alongside with your, with your, you know, trash and recycling? Is that something in your city? Yeah, it's it's yard waste, which then is industrially composted. Mm -hmm. The idea is that you do your domestic composting, you use that locally, mm -hmm. and then yard waste is picked up and taken to an industrial composting facility where they can do very high temperature composting that will work on those like plant-based plastics and things like that, the so-called compostable Mm -hmm, that you just have to have your real are, thermophilic compost for. You just got to get to exactly. really high temperatures. Yeah. yeah. Humans can't, uh, or, you know, domestic people can't really get to those temperatures very easily. Yeah. You'd need to have a larger pile to be able to get those temperatures. So yeah. you might be able to pair up with some neighbors to be able to get that kind of bulk, but it's going to be tricky. Yep. And then um, you need to make sure that your compost piles are far enough away from all structures because <laughs> they'll burn them down. They do do compost that. Compost yeah. will light itself fire. If, if you're doing the, the thermophilic, there's a lot of different composting techniques. So this is this time of year, I'd really encourage people to look into composting. So if you do eat plants and you've got leftover materials, you've got all of the, you know, tops, carrot tops and the this and the that and your, you know, little breadcrumbs and all of that, there's lots of different ways to compost. And even if you're in a city, let's say you're in a high-rise apartment, some a little worm bucket is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Worms are just micro factories, basically. Yep, and they'll eat tubes through full, tubes full of bacteria. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And and even if you don't have a garden to use it, then in your potted plants would love those worm castings or, you know, 
you can make a little bit of extra money on that too, because that sells for a lot. So if you mm -hmm. haven't done composting, this is maybe a, uh, an interesting time just to look into that and see what the options are, because you certainly don't have to do your, you know, big pile where you're turning in it every X number of days and that can make compost fast, but that's not the only way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When I lived in the country, we had a compost bin out in our upper garden and we would throw our vegetable scraps and all that kind of stuff in there. And we ignored it. We didn't, I mean, I would water it once in a while, but other than that, I, you know, we didn't turn it. We didn't do anything. Yeah. And you I got time, once, it'll do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it'll do it over time. But the, the funny story is that my wife at the time, who was not a pagan and had grown up in a city and had a very sort of different spiritual orientation. She was a Buddhist and had a much more sort of theoretical relationship with the world than a kind of nature-based relationship mm -hmm. with the world. She went up to the compost pile at one point to throw a bunch of stuff in and came back and said, somebody has shoveled a bunch of dirt into our <laughs> compost pile. And of course, the dirt was the compost. The right. compost had been had turned into soil, which is what it does. Right. Um, and it <laughs> looks just like any other dirt because that's where dirt comes from. Yeah. And uh, so it was really funny. I was like, no, nobody has been vandalizing our compost pile. That's just what compost does. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that brings up a really, a really interesting point, though, that um, many much of human society is in cities where mm -hmm. we have purposefully isolated ourselves from the rest of nature and the cycles of nature. And so when we're coming from those backgrounds, we have some extra education to to do for ourselves, right? Because why would she have known that, right? She didn't right. need to know that in the context that she grew up in. And that can can lead to a lot of misunderstandings that that people can make. And especially when we're trying to do the best job we can to help take care of our world and manage a world that we are that as we talked about in in recent episodes that we're so ingrained in, right? Every choice that we make influences the rest of our planet. But we're so disconnected from right. these systems. And that's true. And I think it's also true that there is more of a requirement of us to be connected now mm -hmm. because of the crises facing the planet. The earliest archaeological sites have middens. Mm -hmm. They have places where people threw stuff away. They threw bones away. They threw, they, they threw excrement away. They, they just humans for as and, and even pre-humans for as long as we've been around have either dug a hole or made a pile or thrown things away from wherever we were eating without much regard for what was going to happen to it. And that was fine until we started devising stuff that doesn't naturally decompose very well. And, well, now and our we... population increased, right? Of there course. were many points in our history where, you know, there weren't a lot of us. Um, yeah, we couldn't put a dent in nature even if we wanted to. Yeah. But that's a we have a very different a different situation now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
which is why it's important to get excited about decomposition. <laughs> and yeah. the, now it's tricky and we should acknowledge this because we have reactions to the process of decomposition that lead us to revulsion. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that we are not animals that can eat stuff that's decomposing and it, it makes us sick. Right. So, when it's gone too far, there are some, yeah. I mean, when we talk about our fermented foods, that sure. is actually on the, the path there. Right. And that's sure. how we could take certain things that wouldn't normally be very nutritious for us and kind of work with them a little bit, get a little bit more nutrition out of them by having the helping have the microbes kind of process us for us first. But when right. we're talking about something that's putrid, that's that's beyond what we can do. Yeah. Right. We don't like the smell. We don't like the taste. Our noses wrinkle up and we we get it as far away from ourselves as we can. Mm -hmm. And I and that obviously goes directly to our experience of death and mortality. Mm -hmm. I mean, not only is it terrible to have the loss of someone that we love, but then to have them turn into something putrid that disgusts us is another fundamental piece of how hard it is for us to grapple with the fact of our mortality. Right. So a lot of our responses to that have been various kinds of preservation approaches to bodies, attempts to sort of put them away, wall them away, you know, put them somewhere where we don't have to look at them or deal with them. All of that makes absolute logical sense in terms of what kinds of creatures we are and how we react to things that are that are decomposing but we need to step beyond that to understand how many good things decomposition is doing for us and is doing for the world all the time mm -hmm. right so where are we well we were kind of talking about ritual and it and it seems like there's, it's one of these things that is maybe a little bit more just about awareness, but I could certainly imagine someone bringing composting into a ritual space or just awareness, doing some reflections, meditations on it, or maybe going for a nature walk and looking for every point where you can find this happening. In fact, you'd probably spend walk about five feet and then spend about an hour there right right yeah <laughs> oh look there's a fungus oh look there's leaves that are decomposing oh look yep. um you know one thing that occurs to me that could be done as part of a ritual cycle around the course of the year is you could gather a bunch of a bunch of autumn leaves mm -hmm. and compost them and then come the spring equinox or so plant you know, do some planning, right? Earlier than that about what kind of plant you want to have and why. Maybe plant a corn plant or two in the compost mm -hmm. around the spring equinox and then put it in the ground after the freeze and just sort of shepherd that through the whole process, starting with the compost and harvest at the end of the year. And then you'd have corn. That would I like be, that. That would be, uh, I like the idea of it. I don't know whether I'd have the discipline to actually keep that going all year round, but. You might want like to try with several seeds at once if you are. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> they don't always make it. But, but that's so lovely because it's starting before the planting of the seed. 
right? Which is where we usually right. think of it as starting. But at that point, you already have a, a living plant, right? Seeds are these living beings that have been right. around for a while already that came from their mother plant that is growing in the soil. Like we keep, we can just keep going back, right? Where we right. started is, is really very kind of arbitrary, Right. Um, Unless you're talking about biogenesis, which we're not even entirely sure is the way that life got started. You know, if you're talking about the very beginning of life on Earth, you know, was it was it long chain molecules learning to self-replicate? Was mm -hmm. it some sort of panspermia thing where it happened somewhere else and rained in on meteorites and and then got going here? There are there are a bunch of possibilities. Was it multiple events, which then developed in a similar way but we're somehow able to have horizontal transfer between them right we don't know yep right and nature does all of those things a lot yeah so it's it's very hard to you know to make a a judgment call about what we're going to choose to believe i'm i myself am extremely agnostic about the origins of life on earth there's a bunch of different proposals all of which seem reasonable to me and there's not enough data available to make a call you know to select one to believe in right mm -hmm. so until we have more information to me it's just well life started on earth we know that and well, we know it, yeah yeah it's here so you know we'll we'll just have to take it for granted that it got started somehow mm -hmm. yeah i find the whole the whole field which this is the field of astrobiology, right? To just be absolutely mm -hmm. amazing and delightful to think about and try and piece that together. But as you're saying, we really just don't have very much data for, from that time period. But also, again, this is the only example that we have at the moment. We've barely begun to start looking for it in other places. And even in places that we're supposedly looking, right, on Mars, we're not looking where we think that there actually would be life if life's there, it's it's not, it's quite certainly not in the places that we happen to have our rovers, right? It's going to be underneath yeah. the ground or in the ice caps or in the subterranean lakes, things like that, right? Right. And we just don't have the means to get to those places right now. We don't, but that's also, and this is a much larger discussion, but we purposefully are not yet looking for life in those locations. And that's kind of a larger discussion to the strategy that NASA is taking with that and uh, planetary defense, which is one that, again, larger discussion on, on whether I agree with that or don't with it, but there definitely are some concerns around that. And then there are other places that, you know, there's good chance that Europa seems like a great place to find it, but we're pretty far off from being able to actually go into Europa and look for it. Right. So right. there's a lot of of technical challenges and just time challenges because it takes a long time to get anywhere. To get to Europa, it's a long way away. It is, yeah. So, you know the movie Europa Report? I do. Yes, I love it so much. I have. I what what I love about Europa Report more than anything else, other than Brooklyn for some ridiculously low budget, mm -hmm. um, is that. It shows scientists really being passionate about science. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody on that crew wants the data. Yes. <laughs> they, they care about getting the data more than they do their own survival. 
which is just a beautiful thing to me it's so cool yeah not a film to watch with your young kids by the way take a look at you know do a little bit of reading before you show that to some of your younger younger audience yeah that makes sense yeah so but it you know there's wonderful parts to it and so let's i think this is a good place for us to kind of wrap back to our conclusion here decomposition is cool it is it's not just the law it's a good idea yep and death is is a part of the cycle without death there isn't life no life yep nope and minimizing death is not a way to foster life yeah it's life life depends on death in order for us to continue functioning and for the system of life on earth to continue functioning so we i've talked before about the so-called death positivity movement that's happening here in the united states where we're working to transform the 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 cultural understanding of death Mm-hmm. and our relationship to it and our practices around it. And I just feel that this is so important because if you don't really get your mind around the the positive nature of death, you're not really understanding nature. Mm-hmm. And nature, nature is where it's at. You know, mm-hmm. nature is what's happening here. And it's, mm-hmm. it's so amazing. It's, it's tragic that there are people who miss it because they don't understand it. Right. And it's all going to happen whether you want to admit it or not. Mm-hmm. Right. So getting to, to enjoy and be part of the wonder of it is, I think that's great personally. Right. I think that's an improvement in the quality of the life that we get to have in the short period that we do. I agree. Oh. So there you have it. Decomposition 2022. <laughs> we are we're happy to bring you this love note to death and, and rot mm-hmm. and wish you all the very best of this Hallows season. This this time, you know, for many pagans persists for a week or more into early November. Mm-hmm. And we hope that your celebrations are meaningful and spooky and fun and all the things that we hope for out of this season. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>